Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's good to see you back again. Tonight, we continue with Jane Eyre. But first, give yourself some time to put the day behind you. Imagine yourself strolling on a winding path in the countryside, lined with bushes and wildflowers, surrounded further by fields and rolling hills. It is late in the afternoon on a summer's day. You have nowhere in particular to be. You lift your arms above your head and stretch your back. The sun is still warm on your skin. You take a deep breath and notice how sweet and fragrant the air smells. And when you exhale, you sigh and the sound of your breath joins the chirping of birds in the trees. Try to hold on to this visual as we continue. Last time, Jane arrived back to Lowood with an envelope in her pocket containing a reply to her job advertisement in the paper. She had to complete all her evening duties and wait for her roommate, Miss Grice, to fall asleep before she could open it. The letter was asking for a reference from a Mrs. Fairfax at a house called Thornfield in Millcote, who wanted to hire her as a governess for a little girl under ten years old. The next day, Jane sought out the new superintendent who agreed to obtain a reference from the board of the school for her. It came within a month and Jane forwarded it to Mrs. Fairfax. The lady replied promptly and a date was set for her to begin. Before she was due to leave, Jane received a visitor at Lowood. It was Bessie, the old nursery maid from Gateshead, who told her that Mrs. Reed had been visited by a gentleman whom Bessie believed to be Jane's paternal uncle. Mrs. Reed had sent him away, and he was thought to have been bound for Madeira soon after. Jane arrived at Thornfield the following day and found Mrs. Fairfax to be a lovely older woman, but not the owner of the house, only the housemaid and her pupil, a little French girl, 
the ward of the proprietor, Mr. Rochester. Tonight, we join Jane being introduced to her student. So relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 11 continued. As I was meditating on this discovery, a little girl, followed by her attendant, came running up the lawn. I looked at my pupil, who did not at first appear to notice me. She was quite a child, perhaps seven or eight years old, slightly built, with a pale, small-featured face and a redundancy of hair falling in curls to her waist. Good morning, Miss Adela, said Mrs. Fairfax. Come and speak to the lady who is to teach you and to make you a clever woman someday. She approached. C'est la ma gouvernante, said she, pointing to me and addressing her nurse, who answered, Mais oui, c'est un amour. Are they foreigners? I inquired, amazed at hearing the French language. The nurse is a foreigner, and Adela was born on the continent, and I believe never left it till within six months ago, Mrs. Fairfax explained. When she came here, she could speak no English. Now she can make shift to talk it a little. I don't understand her. She mixes it so with French, but you will make out her meaning very well, I dare say. Fortunately, I had had the advantage of being taught French by a French lady, and as I had always made a point of conversing with Madame Pierrot as often as I could, and had besides, during the last seven years, learned a portion of French by heart, daily, applying myself to take pains with my accent, and imitating as closely as possible the pronunciation of my teacher, I had acquired a certain degree of readiness and correctness in the language, and was not likely to be much at loss with Mademoiselle Adela. She came and shook hands with me when she heard that I was her governess, and as I led her into breakfast, I addressed some phrases to her in her own tongue. She replied briefly at first, but after we were seated at the table and she had examined me some ten minutes with her large hazel eyes, she suddenly commenced chattering fluently. Ah, said she in French, you speak my language as well as Mr. Rochester does. I can talk to you as I can talk to him, and so can Sophie. She will be glad. Nobody here understands her. 
Madame Fairfax is all English. Sophie is my nurse. She came with me over the sea in a great ship with a chimney that smoked. How it did smoke! And I was sick, and so was Sophie, and so was Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester lay down on a sofa in a pretty room called the Salon, and Sophie and I had little beds in another place. I nearly fell out of mine. It was like a shelf. And, Mademoiselle, what is your name? Eyre, Jane Eyre, I replied. Eyre, I cannot say it. Well, our ship stopped in the morning, before it was quite daylight, at a great city, a huge city, with very dark houses and all smoky, not at all like the pretty, clean town I came from. And Mr. Rochester carried me in his arms over a plank to the land, and Sophie came after, and we all got into a coach which took us to a beautiful, large house, larger than this and finer, called a hotel. We stayed there nearly a week. I and Sophie used to walk every day in a great green place full of trees called the park, and there were many children there besides me, and a pond with beautiful birds in it that I fed with crumbs. Can you understand her when she runs on so fast? asked Mrs. Fairfax. I understood her very well, for I had been accustomed to the fluent tongue of Madame Pierrot. I wish, continued the good lady, you would ask her a question or two about her parents. I wonder if she remembers them. Adele, I inquired, with whom did you live when you were in that pretty clean town you spoke of? I lived long ago with Mama, but she has gone to the Holy Virgin. Mama used to teach me to dance and sing and to say verses. A great many gentlemen and ladies came to see Mama, and I used to dance before them or sit on their knees and sing to them. I liked it. Shall I let you hear me sing now? She had finished her breakfast, so I permitted her to give a specimen of her accomplishments. Descending from her chair, she came and placed herself on my knee, then folding her little hands demurely before her, shaking back her curls and lifting her eyes to the ceiling, she commenced singing a song from some opera. It was the strain of a forsaken lady who, after bewailing the perfidy of her lover, calls pride to her aid and desires her attendant to deck her in the brightest jewels and richest robes and resolves to meet the false one that night 
at a ball and prove to him by the brightness of her demeanor how little his desertion has affected her. The subject seemed strangely chosen for an infant singer, but I suppose the point of the exhibition lay in hearing the notes of love and jealousy warbled with the lisp of childhood, and in very bad taste that point was, at least I thought so. Adele sang the casanet tunefully enough, and with the naivety of her age. This achieved, she jumped from my knee and said, Now, mademoiselle, I will repeat you some poetry. Assuming an attitude, she began The League of Rats, La Fontaine's Fable. Then she declaimed the little piece with an attention to punctuation and emphasis, a flexibility of voice, and an appropriateness of gesture, very unusual indeed at her age, and which proved she had been carefully trained. Was it your mamma who taught you that piece? I asked. Yes, she made me lift my hand just so to remind me to raise my voice at the question. Now, shall I dance for you? No, that will do, I replied. But after your mamma went to the Holy Virgin, as you say, with whom did you live then? With Madame Frederique and her husband. She took care of me. She is nothing related to me. I think she is poor, for she had not so fine a house as Mama. I was not long there. Mr. Rochester asked me if I would like to go and live with him in England, and I said yes, for I knew Mr. Rochester before I knew Madame Frederique and he was always kind to me and gave me pretty dresses and toys. But you see, he has not kept his word, for he has brought me to England, and now he is gone back again himself, and I never see him. After breakfast, Adele and I withdrew to the library, which room, it appears, Mr. Rochester had directed should be used as the schoolroom. Most of the books were locked up behind glass doors, but there was one bookcase left open, containing everything that could be needed in the way of elementary works and several volumes of light literature, poetry, biography, travels, a few romances. I suppose he had considered that these were all the governess would require for her private perusal, and indeed, they contented me amply for the present, compared with the scanty pickings I had now and then been able to glean at Lowood, they seemed to offer an abundant harvest of entertainment and information. In this room, too, There was a cabinet piano, quite new and of superior tone. 
also an easel for painting and a pair of globes. I found my pupil sufficiently docile, though disinclined to apply. She had not been used to regular occupation of any kind. I felt it would be injudicious to confine her too much at first. So, when I had talked to her a great deal and got her to learn a little, and when the morning had advanced to noon, I allowed her to return to her nurse. I then proposed to occupy myself till dinner time in drawing some little sketches for her to use. As I was going upstairs to fetch my portfolio and pencils, Mrs. Fairfax called to me. Your morning school hours are over now, I suppose, said she. She was in a room, the folding doors of which stood open. I went in when she addressed me. It was a large, stately apartment with purple chairs and curtains, a Turkish carpet, walnut-panelled walls, one vast window, rich in stained glass, and a lofty ceiling, nobly moulded. Mrs. Fairfax was dusting some vases of fine purple spa, which stood on a sideboard. It was a beautiful room, I observed as I looked round, for I had never before seen any half so imposing. Yes, this is the dining room. I have just opened the window to let in a little air and sunshine, for everything gets so damp in apartments that are seldom inhabited. The drawing room yonder feels like a vault. She pointed to a wide arch corresponding to the window and hung like it with a Tyrian-dyed curtain now looped up. Mounting to it by two broad steps and looking through, I thought I caught a glimpse of a fairy place, so bright to my novice eyes appeared the view beyond. Yet it was merely a very pretty drawing room, and within it a boudoir, both spread with white carpets, on which seemed laid a brilliant garland of flowers. Both were seamed with snowy mouldings of white grapes and vine leaves, beneath which glowed in rich contrast crimson couches and ottomans, while the ornaments on the pale Parian mantelpiece were of sparkling bohemian glass, ruby red, and between the windows, large mirrors repeated the general blending of snow and fire. In what order you keep these rooms, Mrs. Fairfax, said I. No dust, no canvas coverings, except that the air feels chilly. One would think they were inhabited daily. Why, Miss Eyre, 
Though Mr. Rochester's visits here are rare, they are always sudden and unexpected, said she. And as I observed that it put him out to find everything swathed up and to have a bustle of arrangement on his arrival, I thought it best to keep the rooms in readiness. Is Mr. Rochester an exacting, fastidious sort of a man? I asked. Not particularly so, but he has a gentleman's tastes and habits, and he expects to have things managed in conformity to them. Do you like him? Is he generally liked? I inquired. Oh, yes. The family have always been respected here. Almost all the land in this neighborhood, as far as you can see, has belonged to the Rochesters' time out of mind. Well, but leaving his land out of the question, do you like him? Is he liked for himself? I have no cause to do otherwise than like him, and I believe he is considered a just and liberal landlord by his tenants, but he has never lived much amongst them, she replied. But has he no peculiarities? What, in short, is his character? Oh, his character is unimpeachable, I suppose. He is rather peculiar, perhaps. He has traveled a great deal and seen a great deal of the world, I should think. I dare say he is clever, but I never had much conversation with him. In what way is he peculiar? I asked. I don't know. It is not easy to describe. Nothing striking, but you feel it when he speaks to you. You cannot be always sure whether he is in jest or earnest, whether he is pleased or the contrary. You don't thoroughly understand him, in short. At least, I don't. But it is of no consequence. He is a very good master. This was all the account I got from Mrs. Fairfax of her employer and mine. There are people who seemed to have no notion of sketching a character or observing and describing salient points, either in persons or things. The good lady evidently belonged to this class. My queries puzzled but did not draw her out. Mr. Rochester was Mr. Rochester in her eyes a gentleman, a landed proprietor, nothing more. She inquired and searched no further, and evidently wondered at my wish to gain a more definite notion of his identity. When we left the dining room, she proposed to show me over the rest of the house, and I followed her upstairs and downstairs admiring as I went, for all was well-arranged and handsome. The large front chambers 
I thought especially grand, and some of the third-story rooms, though dark and low, were interesting from their air of antiquity. The furniture, once appropriated to the lower apartments, had from time to time been removed here as fashions changed, and the imperfect light entering by their narrow casement showed bedsteads of a hundred years old, chests in oak or walnut with their strange carvings of palm branches and cherubs' heads, rows of venerable chairs, high-backed and narrow, stools still more antiquated, on whose cushioned tops were yet apparent traces of half-effaced embroideries wrought by fingers that for two generations had been coffin dust. All these relics gave to the third story of Thornfield Hall the aspect of a home of the past, a shrine of memory. I liked the hush, the gloom, the quaintness of these retreats in the day, but I no means coveted a night's repose on one of those wide and heavy beds, shut in some of them with doors of oak, shaded others with wrought old English hangings crusted with thick work portraying effigies of strange flowers and stranger birds and strangest human beings, all of which would have looked strange indeed by the pallid gleam of moonlight. Do the servants sleep in these rooms? I asked. No, they occupy a range of smaller apartments to the back said she. No one ever sleeps here. One would almost say that if there were a ghost at Thornfield Hall, this would be its haunt. So, I think, you have no ghost then? I asked. None that I ever heard of, returned Mrs. Fairfax, smiling. Nor any traditions of one no legends or ghost stories? I believe not, and yet it is said the Rochesters have been a rather violent than a quiet race in their time. Perhaps, though, that is the reason they rest tranquilly in their graves now. Yes, after life's fitful fever, they sleep well, I muttered. Where are you going now, Mrs. Fairfax? For she was moving away. On to the leads. Will you come and see the view from thence? She asked. I followed still up a very narrow staircase to the attics and thence by a ladder and through a trap door to the roof of the hall. I was now on a level with the crow colony and could see into their nests, leaning over the battlements 
and looking far down, I surveyed the grounds laid out like a map, the bright and velvet lawn closely girdling the grey base of the mansion, the field wide as a park dotted with its ancient timber, the wood dun and sere, divided by a path visibly overgrown, greener with moss than the trees were with foliage. The church at the gates, the road, the tranquil hills, all reposing in the autumn day's sun. The horizon bounded by a propitious sky, azure, marbled with pearly white. No feature in the scene was extraordinary, but all was pleasing. When I turned from it and repassed the trap door, I could scarcely see my way down the ladder. The attic seemed black as a vault compared with that arch of blue air to which I had been looking up and to that sunlit scene of grove, pasture, and green hill, of which the hall was the centre, and over which I had been gazing with delight. Mrs. Fairfax stayed behind a moment to fasten the trap door. I, by dint of groping, found the outlet from the attic and proceeded to descend the narrow garret staircase. I lingered in the long passage to which this led, separating the front and back rooms of the third story, narrow, low, and dim, with only one little window at the far end, and looking, with its two rows of small black doors, all shut like a corridor in some bluebeard's castle. While I paced softly on, the last sound I expected to hear in so still a region, a laugh struck my ear. It was a curious laugh, distinct, formal, mirthless. I stopped, The sound ceased, only for an instant. It began again, louder, for at first, though distinct, it was very low. It passed off in a clamorous peal that seemed to wake an echo in every lonely chamber, though it originated but in one, and I could have pointed out the door whence the accents issued. Mrs. Fairfax, I called out, for I now heard her descending the great stairs. Do you hear that loud laugh? Who is it? Some of the servants, very likely, she answered. Perhaps Grace Poole. Did you hear it? I again inquired. Yes, plainly. I often hear her. She sews in one of these rooms. Sometimes Leah is with her. They are frequently noisy together. 
The laugh was repeated in its slow, syllabic tone and terminated in an odd murmur. Grace, called Mrs. Fairfax. I really did not expect any Grace to answer, for the laugh was as tragic as preternatural a laugh as any I ever heard. And, but that it was high noon, and that no circumstance of ghostliness accompanied the curious cachination, but that neither scene nor season favoured fear, I could have been superstitiously afraid. However, the event showed me I was a fool for entertaining a sense even of surprise. The door nearest me opened, and a servant came out, a woman of between thirty and forty, a set, square-made figure, red-haired and with a hard, plain face. Any apparition less romantic or less ghostly could be scarcely conceived. Too much noise, Grace, said Mrs. Fairfax. Remember directions. Grace curtsied silently and went in. She is a person we have to sew and assist Leah in her housemaid's work, continued the widow. Not altogether unobjectionable in some points, but she does well enough. By the by, how have you got on with your new pupil this morning? The conversation thus turned on Adele continued till we reached the light and cheerful region below. Adele came running to meet us in the hall, saying in French, Madame's, you are served, and adding, I'm famished. We found dinner ready and waiting for us in Mrs. Fairfax's room. Chapter 12 The promise of a smooth career, which my first calm introduced to Thornfield Hall, seemed to pledge, was not belied on a longer acquaintance with the place and its inmates. Mrs. Fairfax turned out to be what she appeared, a placid-tempered, kind-natured woman of competent education and average intelligence. My pupil was a lively child who had been spoiled and indulged and therefore was sometimes wayward. But as she was committed entirely to my care and no injudicious interference from any quarter ever thwarted my plans for her improvement, She soon forgot her little freaks and became obedient and teachable. She had no great talents, no marked traits of character, no peculiar development of feeling or taste which raised her one inch above the ordinary level of childhood 
but neither had she any deficiency or vice which sunk her below it. She made reasonable progress, entertained for me a vivacious, though perhaps not very profound affection, and by her simplicity, happy prattle, and efforts to please, inspired me in return with a degree of attachment sufficient to make us both content in each other's society. This will be thought cool language by persons who entertain solemn doctrines about the angelic nature of children and the duty of those charged with their education to conceive for them an idolatrous devotion. Time not writing to flatter parental egotism, to echo cant, or prop up humbug. I'm merely telling the truth. I felt a conscientious solicitude for Adele's welfare and progress, and a quiet liking for her little self, just as I cherished towards Mrs. Fairfax a thankfulness for her kindness and a pleasure in her society proportionate to the tranquil regard she had for me and the moderation of her mind and character. Anybody may blame me who likes when I add further that now and then when I took a walk by myself in the grounds, when I went down to the gates and looked through them along the road, or when, while Adele played with her nurse and Mrs. Fairfax made jellies in the storeroom, I climbed the three staircases, raised the trap door of the attic, and having reached the leads, looked out afar over sequestered field and hill, and along dim skyline that then I longed for a power of vision that might overpass that limit, which might reach the busy world, towns, regions full of life I had heard of but never seen. It was then that I desired more of practical experience than I possessed, more of conversation with my kind, of acquaintance with variety of character than was here within my reach. I valued what was good in Mrs. Fairfax and what was good in Adele, but I believed in the existence of other and more vivid kinds of goodness, and what I believed in I wished to behold. Who blames me? Many, no doubt and I shall be called discontented. I could not help it. The restlessness was in my nature. It agitated me to pain sometimes. Then my sole relief was to walk along the corridor of the third story, backwards and forwards, safe in the silence and solitude of the spot and allow my mind's eye to dwell on whatever bright visions rose before it. 
and certainly there were many and glowing, to let my heart be heaved by the exultant movement which, while it swelled it in trouble, expanded it with life and best of all, to open my inward ear to a tale that was never ended, a tale my imagination created and narrated continuously, quickened with all of incident, life, fire, feeling that I desired and had not in my actual existence. It is in vain to say human beings ought to be satisfied with tranquility. They must have action, and they will make it if they cannot find it. Millions are condemned to a stiller doom than mine, and millions are in silent revolt against their lot. Nobody knows how many rebellions besides political rebellions for men in the masses of life which people are. Women are supposed to be very calm generally, but women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties and a field for their efforts as much as their brothers do. They suffer from too rigid a restraint too absolute a stagnation, precisely as men would suffer, and it is narrow-minded in their more privileged fellow creatures to say that they ought to confine themselves to making puddings and knitting stockings, to playing on the piano and embroidering bags. It is thoughtless to condemn them or laugh at them if they seek to do more or learn more than custom has pronounced necessary for their kind. When thus alone, I not unfrequently heard Grace Poole's laugh, the same peal, the same slow, low, ha-ha, which when first heard had thrilled me. I heard, too, her eccentric murmurs, stranger than her laugh. There were days when she was quite silent, but there were others when I could not account for the sound she made. Sometimes I saw her. She would come out of her room with a basin or a plate or a tray in her hand, go down to the kitchen and shortly return. Generally, O romantic reader, forgive me for telling the plain truth, bearing a pot of porter. Her appearance always acted as a dampener to the curiosity raised by her oral oddities. Hard-featured and staid, she had no point to which interest could attach. I made some attempts to draw her into conversation, but she seemed a person of few words. A monosyllabic reply usually cut short every effort of that sort. The other members of the household, J. 
John and his wife, Leah the housemaid, and Sophie the French nurse, were decent people, but in no respect remarkable. With Sophie I used to talk French, and sometimes I asked her questions about her native country, but she was not of a descriptive or narrative turn, and generally gave such vapid and confused answers as were calculated rather to check than encourage inquiry. October, November, December passed away. One afternoon in January, Mrs. Fairfax had begged a holiday for Adele because she had a cold, and as Adele seconded the request with an ardor that reminded me how precious occasional holidays had been to me in my own childhood, I accorded it, deeming that I did well in showing pliability on the point. It was a fine, calm day, though very cold. I was tired of sitting still in the library through a whole long morning. Mrs. Fairfax had just written a letter, which was waiting to be posted, so I put on my bonnet and cloak and volunteered to carry it to Hay. The distance, two miles, would be a pleasant winter afternoon walk. Having seen Adele comfortably seated in her little chair by Mrs. Fairfax's parlor fireside and given her best wax doll, which I usually kept enveloped in silver paper in a drawer to play with, and a storybook for change of amusement, and having replied to her, Come back soon, my good friend, my dear Mademoiselle Jeanette, with a kiss, I set out. The ground was hard, the air was still, my road was lonely. I walked fast till I got warm, and then I walked slowly to enjoy and analyze the species of pleasure brooding for me in the hour and situation. It was three o'clock, the church bell tolled as I passed under the belfry. The charm of the hour lay in its approaching dimness, in the low gliding and pale beaming sun. I was a mile from Thornfield, in a lane noted for wild roses in summer, for nuts and blackberries in autumn and even now possessing a few coral treasures in hips and haws, but whose best winter delight lay in its utter solitude and leafless repose. If a breath of air stirred, it made no sound here, for there was not a holly, not an evergreen to rustle, and the strip hawthorn and hazel bushes were as still as the white, worn stones which causewayed the middle of the path. Far and wide on each side there were only fields 
where no cattle now browsed, and the little brown birds which stirred occasionally in the hedge looked like single russet leaves that had forgotten to drop. This lane inclined uphill all the way to hay. Having reached the middle, I sat down on a stile which led thence into a field. Gathering my mantle about me and sheltering my hands in my muff, I did not feel the cold, though it froze keenly, as was attested by a sheet of ice covering the causeway where a little brooklet, now congealed, had overflown after a rapid thaw some days since. From my seat, I could look down on Thornfield. The grey and battlemented hall was the principal object in the vale below me. Its woods and dark rookery rose against the west. I lingered till the sun went down amongst the trees and sank crimson and clear behind them. I then turned eastward. On the hilltop above me sat the rising moon, pale yet as a cloud, but brightening momentarily, she looked over hay, which half lost in trees sent up a blue smoke from its few chimneys. It was yet a mile distant, but in the absolute hush, I could hear plainly its thin murmurs of life. My ear, too, felt the flow of currents. In what dales and depths I could not tell, there were many hills beyond hay and doubtless many becks threading their passes. That evening, calm betrayed alike the tinkle of the nearest streams, the sound of the most remote. A rude noise broke on these fine ripplings and whisperings, at once so far away and so clear a positive tramp, tramp, a metallic clatter which effaced the soft wave wanderings, as in a picture the solid mass of a crag or the rough bowls of a great oak, drawn in dark and strong on the foreground, efface the aerial distance of azure hill sunny horizon and blended clouds where tint melts into tint. The din was on the causeway. A horse was coming. The windings of the lane yet hid it, but it approached. I was just leaving the stile. Yet as the path was narrow, I sat still to let it go by. In those days, I was young, and all sorts of fancies, bright and dark, tenanted my mind. The memories of nursery stories were there, 
amongst other rubbish, and when they recurred, maturing youth added to them a vigor and vividness beyond what childhood could give. As this horse approached, and as I watched for it to appear through the dusk, I remembered certain of Bessie's tales, wherein figured a North of England spirit called a guy trash, which in the form of horse, mule, or large dog, haunted solitary ways and sometimes came upon belated travelers as this horse was now coming upon me. It was very near, but not yet in sight, when in addition to the tramp, tramp, I heard a rush under the hedge, and close down by the hazel stems glided a great dog whose black and white color made him a distinct object against the trees. It was exactly one form of Bessie's guy trash, a lion-like creature with long hair and a huge head. It passed me, however, quietly enough, not staying to look up with strange, pretecanine eyes in my face as I half expected it would. The horse followed, a tall steed, and on its back a rider. The man, the human being, broke the spell at once. Nothing ever rode the guy trash, it was always alone, and goblins, to my notions, though they might tenant the dumb carcasses of beasts, could scarce covet shelter in the commonplace, human form. No guy trash was this, only a traveller taking the shortcut to Millcote. He passed and I went on, a few steps, and I turned. A sliding sound and an exclamation of, what the juice is to do now, and a clattering tumble arrested my attention. Man and horse were down. They had slipped on the sheet of ice which glazed the causeway. The dog came bounding back, and seeing his master in a predicament, and hearing the horse groan, barked till the evening hills echoed the sound which was deep in proportion to his magnitude. He snuffed round the prostrate group, and then he ran up to me. It was all he could do. There was no other help at hand to summon. I obeyed him and walked down to the traveller, by this time struggling himself free of his steed. His efforts were so vigorous I thought he could not be much hurt, but I asked him the question. Are you injured, sir? I think he was swearing, but I'm not certain. However, he was pronouncing some formula which prevented him from replying to me directly. 
can I do anything? I asked again. You must just stand on one side, he answered as he rose, first to his knees and then to his feet. I did, whereupon began a heaving, stamping, clattering process, accompanied by a barking and baying, which removed me effectually some yards distance. But I would not be driven quite away till I saw the event. This was finally fortunate. The horse was re-established, and the dog was silenced with a down pilot. The traveller, now stooping, felt his foot and leg, as if trying whether they were sound. Apparently something ailed them, for he halted to the stile whence I had just risen and sat down. I was in the mood for being useful, or at least officious, I think, for I now drew near him again. If you are hurt and want help, sir, I can fetch someone, either from Thornfield Hall or from Hay, I said. Thank you, I shall do. I have no broken bones, only a sprain, he replied. And again he stood up and tried his foot, but the result extorted an involuntary cry. 